first got into ministry, I, I, I thought I knew a lot. And uh, it really is over the years that God humbles you, he sometimes even humiliates you. But it's all for a good cause. It's all about building you up. And so some of those difficult times and some of those struggles and tears and everything else really help you become who you need to be. And I think there's a lot of people who maybe don't realize that going in. And so when it gets really awful, that's when they want to quit, not realizing that's exactly what God's wanting um, so that you can come out of it as a more powerful and more useful ministry. The theme of sifted is um, so huge to me because God is so true when he's, he talks about how he, hum, he, he humbles those who are proud and exalts those who really humble themselves. And I've just seen some supernatural things over the years. God's blessing like just poured out on someone as a result of that, that type of humility that the Holy Spirit did in that person's life. And then the other side is I've seen a lot of pain of people that have gotten angry at God and or angry at spiritual leaders who are trying to help them out. And you just see this bitterness grow. You know, they say it's not there or whatever, but it affects everything, not just these blessings of God, but you can see it on their faces, their, their countenance changes. It's amazing what God can do when a person is broken and humbled and uh, and the change in the Holy Spirit can, can uh, place in that person's life. But on the flip side, it's also very scary and sad what he does with those who are proud. The general rule of my life is, Jesus, I really want to be like you, and I know I cannot be like you unless I go through some of these difficult times, unless I am tried. And you're a little difficult to hear some of these things. And uh, we may have to deal with some issues, but we believe when we come out the other side, we're going to be that much closer to the Lord and that much more effective for ministry. I don't know how I even follow that up. He's <laughs> did a pretty good job talking about being sifted. Our God allows us to be sifted uh, for a reason. You know, the Bible says he molds us like a potter molds a clay pot. And our God is a refining fire. In Malachi 3, can you all hear me? Okay. Malachi 3, verses 2 through 4, it says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. You know, the scripture doesn't say that God is a forest fire. He's not indiscriminately burning up things. He's not out of control. It doesn't say that he's an incinerator that destroys. Um, It says he's a refiner's fire. And I've... I've asked uh, um, Sheila and the others to pass out a uh, little handout about what the ancient process of refining gold and silver was like. So that when you hear that God is a refining fire, that that's the process that uh, the Bible is talking about. I'm not really going to refer 
Uh, I don't think at all to that handout, so read it later because it, uh, it, it's really eye-opening uh, what it's about. So, But God is the refiner's fire. And refining is that process of heating, using heat to reveal impurities that a lot of times you don't even know are there. You don't know they're there. But the refining process will remove them and that will leave behind something that is beautiful and precious and rare. And um, that's the kind of fire our God is. He's a refining fire. So why is God a refining fire? And I think the reason is because we need to be refined. I know me. I know I need to be refined. And the Bible talks about several ways that we need to be refined. First of all, we will not be mature and complete without experiencing testing. James 1, 2 through 5 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, uh, about a week ago, my husband and I were in Mexico laying on the beach. And uh, we were trying to escape winter, and and winter never came. (laughs) So we're down in Mexico, and it's warmer up here than it is there. But we had the beach, and you guys didn't. There's no beach in St. Louis. So I'm laying on the beach, and I'm thinking, I'm going to persevere through this. I'm going to lay on this beach all day. You know, and I'm just going to make it happen. And, you know, I'm not going to quit until I'm done. And it, but no, you, you know, I, I didn't want to leave the beach. I'm having a good time on the beach. It was easy to lay on the beach. So when he says perseverance must finish its work, that must mean there's something you have to persevere through. It's going to be hard. Perseverance takes work. How do you persevere if it's always easy? So that's why God is a refining fire, because we have to learn how to persevere so that we can be mature and complete. Another reason God's a refining fire is to prove my faith genuine. In 1 Peter 1, 6-9, it says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Have you guys ever heard of Charles Charles Blondin or Blondin? Okay. Well, don't give it away. All right. But uh, he was a tightrope walker back in the late 1800s, and he was really good at what he did. And you may have heard of this story, because I know there is a children's book about it. But, uh, no, that's a different guy. Uh, This guy walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And people gathered on both the U.S. side and the Canadian side, and they're watching him. And he goes across, he walks across the tightrope, and they're all like, yay! And then he walks across with a sack on him, on his feet. Yay! And then he walked across blindfolded. Yay! And um, what else did he do? Oh, he walked across on stilts over the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And then he finally he takes a wheelbarrow and he puts it on the tightrope and he pushes it across to the other side. And everybody's cheering so loud it was louder than the roar of the falls. And then he says, who 
thinks I could put a man in this wheelbarrow and push him back across to the other side. And everybody's like, yeah, I think you can do it. You're the greatest. I've never seen anybody greater than you. And he said, okay, who will volunteer? (laughs) And it got really quiet. Nobody really believed. They didn't want to stake their life on it, that he could push somebody in a wheelbarrow across that tightrope back across the other side. And so if you're not willing to get in the wheelbarrow, do you really believe? There's there's some kind of little doubt in there. I don't know if you're going to be able to take care of me. And so when we're going through a time of testing, God's refining fire. And it's like God asking us to get in the wheelbarrow. You know, do you really believe I'm going to take care of you? Do you really trust that I can do this? Um, it proves my faith to me, and it proves my faith to other people. Sometimes you're going through a trial, and it's not about you at all. It's about somebody who's watching you. When I was in college, um, there was a, a church on campus, a, a lot of Christians that would invite people to come to their campus group. And I was invited a few times, and I wasn't interested in coming. And there was this one uh, girl who I worked with in the library. Her name was Mitzi. And she had invited me a few times. And I really liked Mitzi, but I'm like, I'm not interested in going to your Bible study. I really don't care about that. And, um, and then her uh, twin brother committed suicide. And I never said anything to Mitzi. I mean, I said, well, I'm really sorry to hear about your brother. But I never told her, well, now let's see what her faith does for her. But I remember thinking, is this going to make a difference? Is she going to stop believing in God now? Because this is pretty awful. And and I watched Mitzi. And I didn't become a Christian then. But two years later, I'm back. And I am interested in God. And I think Mitzi and her uh, willingness to walk through God's refining fire and stay faithful played a part in me becoming a Christian later. So sometimes your faith needs to be proved genuine, not just to you. Because God already knows if your faith is genuine. You're not proving to God that your faith is genuine. You're proving it to yourself, and you're proving it to somebody who's watching you, maybe. Another reason that we need uh, God's refining fire is because refining produces perseverance and character and hope. Romans 5, 2 through 5 says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And also God is a refining fire because if we share in Christ's sufferings, we'll share in his glory. Romans 8.17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, indeed, we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And then lastly, and this one really uh, floored me. God is a refining fire and he refines us because even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5, 7-9 Yet while Christ was here on earth, he pleaded with God, praying with tears and agony of soul to the only one who would save him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his strong desire to obey God at all times. And even though Jesus was God's son, he had to learn from experience what it was like to obey when obeying meant suffering. 
It was after he had proved himself perfect in this experience that Jesus became the giver of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. I'm not even going to try to explain how Jesus had to learn how to obey because um, I, don't, I don't understand that. But I know it says that he did. And it says that um, the Greek word that's used to describe Jesus' prayers, I can't probably say it right, kragi, K-R-A-U-G-E, and it means the groanings of one enduring searing pain. If Jesus needed to endure that in order to learn how to obey God or to learn it, what it meant or how it was to obey God when you're in searing pain, who am I to think I don't need to learn that? Who are we to think I shouldn't have to go through that? You know, And if nothing else, it tells me that when I am going through that, Jesus knows exactly how that feels. In fact, he probably endured a whole lot more than I'll ever be asked to endure. And... Um, and it's for our good. <clears throat> but a lot of Christians, you know, we don't believe this. Because we're not told this. Um, they're, they're, at least they're surprised to hear that God is a refining fire. And he uses hard times and difficult situations to mold me. And, and bring the impurities in me up to the surface so that they can be dealt with. Um, if you watch TV and the televangelists, they're mostly telling you, you know, if you believe in God, he's going to bless you. You're going to have money. Your marriage is going to work out. Um, you're going to have that job. You just need to claim it. You just need to have faith um, that, that God, God is wanting to bless you. And he is just waiting to open the storehouses and pour out his blessings on you. And all you have to do is believe that. And if you believe it or not, that's going to happen to you. Now, I've been a Christian for 38 years. And I've seen many people fall prey to this false idea that my life should be smooth sailing if I believe in God. Perhaps these people have never read 1 Peter 4.12 where it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised. This isn't something strange. Nothing strange is happening. This is all part of God's plan. God is using this. He's a refiner. He's being very purposeful. It's not a raging forest fire. God has a plan, and he knows what he's doing. And, um, but we don't, we don't hear that a lot. Um, I think of this couple that, uh, before I even was dating Chris, it was a long time ago, because we've been married 32 years. I'm going to call them Bob and Sue. You don't know them, but I'm going to change their names in case somebody who does know them ever listens to this. <clears throat> Bob was a, an abusive alcoholic, and Sue was a codependent woman married to him. And um, she would leave Bob. And then he would cry, oh, I'm going to change, I'm going to change. And then she would come back. And this happened over and over and over and over. And I was reaching out to Sue. And the minister of our, the church we went to then was in Greater Alton. It was across the state. Was reaching out to Bob. And, and uh, they both decided they wanted to recognize that Jesus was the Lord. And they wanted to be baptized. And they were going to die to themselves. And they were going to follow Christ. 
And so they did that, and two weeks later they were gone. Because they thought, if I do this, then God's going to fix this marriage. And it's going to be smooth sailing now. And he's not going to drink anymore. And he's not going to be abusive. And that didn't happen. And they were surprised that that didn't happen. And I've seen a lot of people go through that. They're, they're kind of like the rocky soil that Jesus talks about in Mark 4. The word doesn't have any root in their hearts. And so when trouble comes or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. And when their trouble wasn't just taken away, um, they quickly fell away. And I think that's a real shame because God could have healed that marriage. And God could have healed that addiction. And God wanted to do those things, but they weren't willing or they did not understand. They had to go through this refining fire. And it was going to be some hard work. And they were going to have to persevere through some difficult times. So maybe an allegory would kind of give a window on this. I like allegories. And if you've ever heard me, you've heard me speak a couple years ago, I talked about this book, Hind Feet on High Places, <clears throat> and by Hannah Hernard. It's, you know this book? It's a great story. I mean, it's not a perfect story. It's fiction. It's an allegory. But uh, it's about this, uh, this young woman. Her name is Much Afraid. Her last name is Fearing. Much Afraid Fearing. And she lives in the Valley of Humiliation. And she has some family that lives there. There's Aunt Dismal Foreboding. There's her cousins, Gloomy and uh, Spiteful. And then her cousin, Craven Fear, who was really awful. And she did not really like living in the Valley of Humiliation. And she worked for the, the Good Shepherd. And every morning and every evening, she would meet the Good Shepherd and talk to him. And and the, the Good Shepherd lived in the high places, but he would come down to the valley. And to live in the high places, she was going to have to uh, develop hind feet. Hind is another word for like deer. Have you ever seen a deer or a goat on a mountain? It's amazing how they can just jump around and you don't even think that they could have a footing, but they can. And that's what she needs to have. But much afraid has crippled feet. And she has a crooked mouth. And she's much afraid. And she's afraid to go to the high places. Um, but she finally, something happens in the Valley of Humiliation and it finally becomes unbearable. And she says to the Good Shepherd <clears throat> that, I, that she wants to live in the high places, that she's dreamed of going there. And he says to her, are you willing to be changed completely? Because you're going to need hind feet. The feet you have aren't going to uh, allow you to walk around on the high places. And your name is going to have to be changed. You can't be much afraid and live on the high places. And she said, I am willing to be changed completely. And so she starts on the journey. <clears throat> and she's climbing the steep, craggy cliffs. And then the, the, the trail turns and she's going through a dry, lonely desert. And, a, and then she has a long journey along a monotonous seashore. It's just the same thing day after day after day. And the journey is long, and it's sometimes frightening, and it's difficult, and much afraid again and again must decide if she's going to trust that shepherd, that he's going to do what he promised to do. He's going to change my feet into hind feet. He's going to change my name from much afraid and give me a new name. 
And um, now along the way, not only is the journey difficult, but along the way, the residents of the Valley of Humiliation are angry that Much Afraid is going to the high places. They don't like it. That ever happened to you? You start changing to follow Christ and people around you, family and friends, don't like it. Maybe they're threatened. Maybe they feel guilty. Maybe you're just changing the relationship and they're not comfortable with that. But they don't like it. And so they accost her when she least expects it. They, they come up to her. They just pop out of the rocks from time to time. And usually when the journey is really difficult and she's a little tempted to quit. And they mock her. And they try to persuade her to give up. And I just want to read a little bit um, for what they do. The first one who says something to her is pride. And pride said, I told you so. Where are you now, you little fool, up on the high places? Not much. Do you know that everyone in the Valley of Humiliation knows about this and is laughing at you? Seeking your heart's desire, hey? And left abandoned by him just as I warned you on the shores of loneliness. Why didn't you listen to me, you little fool? And then resentment raises his head. And he says, you know, much afraid. You act like a blind idiot. Who is this shepherd you follow? What sort of a person is he to demand everything you have and take everything you offer and give you nothing in return but sorrowing and suffering and ridicule and shame? Why do you let him treat you like this? Stand up for yourself. Tell him you're not going to follow him any longer. And then bitterness comes along and says, the more you yield to him, the more he will demand from you. He's cruel to you and takes advantage of your devotion. All he has demanded from you so far is nothing to what he will demand if you persist in following him. He lets his followers, yes, even women and children, go to concentration camps and torture chambers and hideous deaths of all kinds. Could you bear that, you little whiner? Then you better pull out and leave him before he demands everything. Because sooner or later, he's going to put you on a cross of some sort and leave you to it. And then lastly, self-pity comes up and says, in a really soft whisper, Poor little much afraid. It's too bad, you know. You really are so devoted, and you've refused him absolutely nothing, and yet this is the cruel way he treats you. Can you really believe he acts toward you like this, that he loves you? And he has your real good at heart. How can that be possible? You have every right to feel sorry for yourself. Even if you're perfectly willing to suffer for his sake, at least other people ought to know about it and feel sorry for you instead of misunderstanding and ridiculing you as they do. It really seems as though the one you follow takes delight in making you suffer. You ever had people talk to you like that? You ever had thoughts like that? So not only is the journey itself difficult, but we're tempted to give in to our pride. We're tempted to give in to bitterness and anger and resentment and self-pity. And giving in to all these things will stop our transformation from being much afraid to becoming whatever it is God intends for us to be. Now, you know, the shepherd could have just picked up much afraid in the Valley of Humiliation and carried her up and put her on the high places. But then she'd still be much afraid. And she'd still have crippled feet. And nothing about her would have changed. What much afraid needed was to be transformed. 
and she needed to learn to trust the shepherd as he leads her to the high places, up those steep mountains and through the dry and lonely desert and along the monotonous seashore. And along the way, much afraid, is going to face disappointment and discouragement and doubt. But also along the way, she's going to be asked to trust and surrender to the shepherd more and more. Some of us, I think, are much afraid. We like to go to the high places, but we're afraid of what it would cost us. We're afraid of what the shepherd may ask of us. We're afraid it's going to hurt. It will hurt. We're afraid we'll be asked to sacrifice. We will be asked to sacrifice. And we're afraid the shepherd may not take care of us. And he will take care of us. But we won't know that unless we get in the wheelbarrow. We're not going to leave the Valley of Humiliation until we're sick of being in the Valley of Humiliation. And you know, I don't think the Valley of Humiliation is so much where Much Afraid lived. I think it was uh, the way she thought. The Valley of Humiliation was inside her. So anyway, I'll let you, if you want to see how she gets to the high places, I'll let you read. You can get it at any library. You can order it. Is it? Yes. Wow. Technology is awesome. Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Bernard. Isn't that alliterative? Hind's, H-I-N-D apostrophe S, Feet on High Places by Hannah Bernard. Uh-uh. You know, trouble is not anything that we can avoid. Much Afraid had troubles in the Valley of Humiliation. And she also had trouble on the journey to the high places. Now, we're going to either have trouble in this world, which does not refine us, or we can submit to God's refining fire and we can be transformed. So trials and trouble are coming whether we're transformed or not. If they are meant to refine me and change my character to be more like Christ, how can I make sure that these trials achieve their purpose? What is my role in this? And I think it all depends on our choices. Um, about a year and a half ago, I uh, remember when we were doing that book on Acts by N.T. Wright, and we were reading through the book of Acts together in our small groups, and um, I remember reading, I think it's in Acts 4, where it, uh, Peter and John had just been told by uh, the authorities, don't preach anymore about Jesus, stop it, or we're going to put you in jail. And they let them go, and they go back, and they meet with the other believers, and they're praying. And the room where they were shook. And I thought, I've never been in a room that shook because we were praying. Why, does, why doesn't that happen? Why doesn't that happen anymore? Doesn't God work that way anymore? And, and the thought came to me, and I think maybe it was from God. Um, are you doing anything that you need the room to shake, Debbie? To reassure you that I'm with you? And I thought, oh no, nobody's threatening to put me in jail unless I stop talking about Jesus. And nobody's really giving me a hard time. And life is pretty easy. And so, no, I don't think I need the room to shake. Maybe I need to do some things where I need the room to shake. Maybe I need to get in the wheelbarrow and trust God on the scary stuff, and maybe I'll see the room shake. And, um, and so I started praying. I was praying for the Spirit. I wanted to see God's Spirit work in me, and I wanted to see God's Spirit work in Greater Alton. And I started praying for that. 
And uh, in the spring of that year, you know, I struggled with with uh, controlling what I eat for my entire life. It's been a problem for me. And in February of last year, I found a program, and I finally, sorry, finally, this is too close to me. I can't gesture. Um, I finally was able to repent of that, and uh, and I lost 80 pounds in five months. And I remember telling people, God has granted me repentance, and I am so grateful because I have tried and I have tried and I have tried and I have tried and finally I have this program and that for some reason I am able to stay on it and um, and I felt great and I also told people life begins at 60 because I'm retiring at the end of the next school year and I'm getting healthy and I'm going to spend time with my grandkids and I'm going to volunteer in their schools and I'm going to volunteer in the community and at all these plans and life begins at 60 I can't wait. Then my husband and I went on vacation to Washington, D.C. And on the way back home, uh, we were about an hour out of Washington, D.C. And we were in a a bad car accident. And uh, the car was totaled. And Chris was not harmed. But I had two broken ribs. And uh, so we made it home. And uh, But the x-rays, my doctor called me and said, the x-rays show... Um, we don't like the way your bones look, and uh, and I think most of you know, you know what the diagnosis was. But uh, um, they did some testing, and within about a week, I found out that I had breast cancer. And not only did I have breast cancer, but it spread to my lymph nodes and it spread to my bones. It was stage four, and uh, there's no curing stage four. There's just trying to control it, and uh, so I have cancer in my neck and in several places in my spine and in my left shoulder blade and in my ribs and in my sternum and in my pelvis and in my right femur and um, that was a real blow because I did not see that coming and I did not feel sick well I felt pretty bad right then because I had broken ribs but uh, and it really uh I'm, I'm in the middle of a refining fire. I'm being pressed through a sieve. And I wasn't expecting it. And um, so how do you make it through something like that? Because God is taking me through that. You know? And I know, you know, there is nothing... Well, there's a little bit that's happening to me that's not happening to some of you. I mean, we're all uh, today a day closer to uh, meeting Jesus than we were yesterday. So, you know, everybody's going to die. But I don't particularly look forward to some of the things I may have to go through. Um, unless uh, Jesus comes back or he takes me another way. But uh, So I, I just want to share with you what has helped me in getting through this refining fire. And I know I'm speaking to women who have been through or are right now going through uh, a refining fire of God. I know I'm speaking to some raw hearts. And I know that God has refined, is refining you and has refined you. So, but I'm just going to talk to you about me and what God has been doing with me. So the first thing, 
that I did and the first thing I recommend that you do when you find yourself being blindsided by a trial is pray pray and ask God is there something for me to learn here have I not been listening to you but also just ask him for wisdom James 1, 2 through 5 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance again. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I don't think it's any coincidence that right after the the verses about talking about trials, he says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. I think we need wisdom to get through these trials. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, when I was first diagnosed, I did pray with loud cries and tears, um, like Jesus was. One of the, the things that I prayed is I prayed, I prayed a lot of psalms, and one of them that I prayed a lot was Psalms 139, 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, if God had something for me to learn, I wanted to learn it. And so I'm asking God, open my eyes. Let me see what you want me to see. Let me understand what you want me to understand. If there's something offensive in me, would you show me that? Would you refine me, God? Would you bring it up to the surface so that you can remove it? I prayed for wisdom over and over. Now, I want to tell you, I've had people say to me, I just I had my hair cut this week, and the woman who cuts my hair, her mother died of cancer about a year ago. And, uh, and she said to me, I hope if anything like this ever happens to me, I can handle it like you have. And, and I said, well, I, I only handle it because of the grace of God. And, uh, but I've had more than one person say that to me. And I want you to know, sometimes we look at people and we think, Wow. Look at her. She's just sailing through that. Um, She is so spiritual. I could never do that. And I want you to know, you 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 don't see me all the time. Yeah, I come to church with a smile on my face. And yes, I want to uh, be thinking of other people because it's not all about me. But And my name is not much afraid. It used to be. But my name is not much afraid anymore. But my name is also not Sally Super Spiritual. Okay? I am not like having it all together. You, you haven't seen the times I've melted down. Some of you have. My husband and I try to pray together every night, and there have been nights when I said to him, I don't want to talk to God right now. Could you pray for me? Because I just can't do it right now. And so I don't want you to think that God has made this, oh, well, this is a piece of cake. It's not a piece of cake. 
going through a trial is not a piece of cake. But God will see me through it, and he'll see you through it too. But you're going to have to pray. Uh, another thing you're going to have to do, the second thing, is watch how you think. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Satan's going to whisper lies in your ears, just like much afraid acquaintances came and pelted her with. And Satan's going to tell you, you're being punished. You've done something wrong. That's why this is happening to you. God is mad at you. Or he might say, you've not done anything to deserve this. This isn't fair. God doesn't care about you. God's left you. Maybe there is no God. And you're going to think those things. You know, there's an old proverb that says, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. And that's the same thing with these thoughts. I can't help the thought coming in my head. God doesn't even know what's going on with me. I don't think he even sees me. But then I can take that thought and I go, okay, what does the Bible say about how God feels about me? Is God aware of me? And I can read in the Gospels that God has counted how many hairs are on my head. I love my grandkids, but I have never counted the hairs on their head. You know? <laughs> that God would be that interested in the minutiae of me, you know. So I need to take that thought and I need to compare it to what God's Word says. And if it's not what God's Word says, then I need to let that go. And I need to refuse to let that bird nest in my hair. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6, it says, We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In John 8.31, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And I tell you what, when you're going through a time of testing, you better hold on to that teaching. Because it's going to be a bumpy ride. And you know, I had people that helped me with that. Um, I, had, I had a conversation with Alan Hamblin, which really helped me. Um, and then Bob and Faye Hawkins. With some of the thoughts I was having. You know, when, when, you're, when you're being refined, things that have always been a problem, suddenly they come to the surface. And maybe it's been in the back of your mind. I need to figure this out. I need to deal with this. But eh, I'll, do it, I'll do it later. And then all of a sudden, I have to do it now. It's a big issue now. And one of the first things I thought of when I was diagnosed with cancer, and at that time I didn't know, do I have six months? Do I have a year? I don't know. It's stage four. I don't know what's going to happen. And so the, one of the first verses that popped in my head is Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only, those who, only the one who does the will of my Father. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? Oh, gosh, I'm, my mind's going to go blank. <clears throat> yeah, we, we perform miracles and we heal people and do, we do all these things in your name. And he's going to say to them, Depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. And I'm like, those people were surprised. They were religious people doing religious things, and they were working, doing good works, and they were surprised when Jesus said, I don't even know who you are. And so I'm thinking, could I be one of those people? 
could I be one of those people in Matthew 7, 21 who's going to say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things for you. Yeah, I, I'm facing my death. Could I be one of those people? And so I'm very afraid. And so I'm talking to Alan Hamblin about it. And I'm talking to Bob and Jay Hawkins about it. And what jewels, what a treasure Bob and Jay Hawkins is. And I'm taking their classes. I take Faye's class on Thursday morning. I take Bob's class on Thursday night. And, and then we, Bob and I especially have had a lot of conversation. Because this is a man who has a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge on the Word of God. And so um, he was helping me to watch how I think and to figure out where, let, let's see correctly my relationship with God. What's the Bible have to say about that? I wasn't interested in what somebody's opinion was. Oh, you're a nice person. You're fine. You know, I don't want to hear that. I want to show me some scripture. Show me some scripture that tells me what I need to do. And, um, and Alan and Bob and Faye and other people helped me with that. And then I just wanted, this is free. This has nothing to do with my lesson. But as I was putting this together, I thought of this. And I don't want to step on anything that you're going to say, Denise. But... I'm thinking, you know, Bob and Faye, they're in their 70s. They're not going to be around forever. And, you know, Bob and Faye Hawkins did not become Bob and Faye Hawkins in the last six months. They started becoming Bob and Faye Hawkins 50 years ago. Choices that they made 50, 40, 50 years ago have led them to where they are now so that they have the wisdom and the knowledge to help people like me. And so I'm wondering, who's going to replace Bob and Faye Hawkins? Who's going to choose now to make the decisions to, to study the word and to be in classes and to understand what God says and let God mold them so that by the, in 50 years they're going to have that kind of wisdom? We need to be thinking about that. You know, how are we encouraging our husbands or are we looking for men to date and, and potentially marry who have that kind of passion to know God's word and to be a student of his word? So I just want to throw that out there because if I didn't have Bob and Faye Hawkins, I'm sure God would provide something. But praise God, He provided them. So grateful for them. Third thing, look for things to be grateful for when you're in the trial. There's always, always something to be grateful for. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So what what am I grateful for? Man, I couldn't list them all. I'm grateful my cancer is slow growing, and they tell me I could be here for a while. I I might be here six or seven years. I don't know. I might get hit by a truck this afternoon. I don't know. But I'm hoping I'm going to be here for a while, and I'm grateful it's slow growing, and I can do things like go on vacation with my husband and... and, uh, stand up here and talk with you. I'm grateful that I have God to help me through this because I could be a non-Christian and facing this. Non-Christians face this all the time. I'm grateful for the friends that God has given me. I'm grateful I live in America. I could be in Syria in a burqa in a cave with stage 4 breast cancer and no medical facilities to help me and nobody to tell me about Jesus. Okay, I have so much to be grateful for. Fourth thing to do is uh, when you find yourself being pressed in a sieve, lean on faithful friends. 
Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Don't hide your struggle. Open yourself up to faithful women who can pray with you, who can counsel you, and who can just cry with you. Now, I'm not saying spill your guts to everybody who comes along, because not everybody can handle what you're going through. And not everybody can be helpful. Um, some of them might be from the Valley of Humiliation, and they may try to tell you, um, get some of those birds to nest in your hair. Okay, But don't try to walk through this fire all by yourself. You know, when, uh, when I was first diagnosed, one of the first people I called was Denise. And I said, you've got to come over here. I need to talk to you. And then uh, Chris Hamblin, did you just call and say, do you want me to come over? I think you did. And I said, yeah. And then Trisha just showed up. And uh, she showed up with her boys, and they mowed the lawn, and she, you know, she brought me flowers. And, and uh, that first week was really, really hard. And these women uh, just sat and listened to me. They cried with me. They prayed with me. They comforted me. They reassured me that God was, uh, was there and he's watching out for me. And uh, I'm so grateful that you all were there. So don't try to walk through a trial all by yourself. When God has provided such godly women that can come alongside you, that's what the church is for. So we can come alongside each other and help each other through these things. Then the fifth thing we need to do is we just need to decide we're going to trust God. Because that's what the refining process is all about. It's about learning to trust God and obey. And there is, sounds like a song, and there's no other way to maturity and completeness in Christ. And we have to make that decision again and again to trust God. Sometimes we're going to have to make it every hour. Multiple times in an hour to trust God and that we're going to get in that wheelbarrow and we're going to prove our faith to ourselves even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. And this decision has to be an intentional choice. You're not going to accidentally trust God. You're going to have to decide when it looks like it's a stupid thing to do, when your friends are going to tell you don't do it, your friends in the world, you're going to have to decide I'm going to trust God. Now there's a song I want to play for you. It's a song about a woman in the middle of a refining fire. And this song, I first heard it right after I was diagnosed. And I could not listen to it because it just ripped me up. Uh, But it's a great song. And this woman is in the middle of a refining fire and she's praying. The whole song is a prayer. And she's confused. Because she thought God was leading her in one way and all of a sudden... She's someplace else, and she's heartbroken. And she's wondering, why is this happening? I didn't see this coming. And she's tempted to think God doesn't care. But she reminds herself, through God's word, she reminds herself of who God is and what scripture says about him. She reminds herself that God is good, even though what she's going through does not feel good. She reminds herself God is for her. She reminds herself that God is aware of her and aware of her situation. And she intentionally chooses to submit her will to God and to trust him 
even when it hurts and even when it's hard because he is God and she is not. And then she reaches the conclusion, thy will be done. And may we all reach that conclusion when God is refining us and testing us and making out of us something that is pure and precious and beautiful and rare. And we'll listen to that song and my lesson will be done.